If you've not done so already, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Psalms. If you're not used to using a Bible or you don't have one with you, scattered throughout the pews should be some black pew Bibles. They look like this. I'm reading from one of them. And so according to the page number right in front of me, page 447 is where you can find Psalm number 60. Psalm number 60, I am titling a song about victories and defeats. And we will see both of them right from the get-go. So before I read the passage, instead of just giving you some thoughts to think about, I want to walk you through the structure of this psalm and then read it to you and then unpack it together. First, you're going to see the superscription. That's the all capital letters. Starts with to the choir master. And when you notice what you're going to, when we read this, there's a few words that scholars aren't sure what they mean. Uh, a miktam, that one's not real clear. Shushan aduth, that's not an English word. If you're wondering, like, is my vocabulary really poor and that people are going around talking about Shushan aduths? It's just a transliteration. It just means it's English letters for the sounding of a Hebrew word. And if you were to translate it, it would be something about lilies or the shape of a lily, which is why some people think it's a musical term for like a trumpet and the way that a horn or a trumpet would play a certain tune. Because remember, this is to the choir master and we're reading the book of songs that people sang together in worship. And so that's my best guess on explaining Shushan Aduth. Miktam of David, David's the king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel ever had. I want you to notice, though, for instruction, and then when David was striving against, and then you have Aram Naharim, and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. And if you were paying attention, you heard a little bit about that when Bobby came up and read for us from our Old Testament scripture reading. So that's the context, and you'll notice right from the get-go that this context is victory. David's winning battles to the north. Edom is getting slain by David's commander, Joab. So, victories, and then you're going to notice defeats. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. That's the first main section, and it's going to be about God disciplining his people for their failure to keep their covenant and therefore removing his power from their battle. And therefore, they lose. So we have God not with them, and the absence of God's presence means defeat for the people. And David is lamenting this reality. So that's what we'll see first. Then, in the middle section, you're going to start noticing promises. God speaking in his holiness, starting in verse 6, and then all the way to verse 8, you're going to notice that there's a bunch of land descriptions. And I believe that these are God's speaking promises that they're reiterating. So you're going to go from victory in the superscription, defeat in verses 1 through 5. Then promises in verses 6, 7, and 8. And then finally we'll conclude in verses 9 to 12 with a section about future victory. Hope that they will be victorious in the land of Edom, which 
What did the superscription say? When Joab slain a bunch of Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So notice the connection between this slaining of people in Edom and the last section regarding who's going to go with us to Edom. And I think that will help you kind of just get, get your bearings a little bit regarding as I read this, that's what you're about to hear. So let's read it, starting with the superscription. To the choir master, according to Shushan, Aduth, a miktam of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Nahrem and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom and the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You've been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand. And answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And thus ends the reading of this holy inspired and errant word. And I pray that as we unpack Psalm 60, its truth will be on our hearts and it will guide us into obedient action for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, if you followed the intro, you noticed superscription set the table for a battle, several battles, several victories, but one in particular was the Valley of Salt in Edom. And so if you drop down at the very end of Psalm 60, you'll notice in verse 9 and 10, who's going to bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. That sounds very similar to the first section. God, where are you? You've left us. And I think in some ways what we're getting is this description of these victories that are stated in the very beginning. We have the prayers And the way that they dealt with the past defeats that helped them figure out how to move forward into this battle in Edom. So, in summary, I would suggest this. Psalm 60 exists. The reason you have it in your Bible is in order to instruct. You know what it says? For instruction. It exists to instruct God's people how to deal with defeat. 
In one simple pithy statement, hopefully you can just tuck that away, remember and think, Psalm 60, what's it about? It's a psalm that instructs the people of God how they should deal with their defeats. So I would like to give you three lessons, three instructions for how you should, as a person who hopefully wants to be part of the people of God, how can you learn from Psalm 60 and how can you deal with your defeats? So here they are, three lessons right from the get-go. We're going to first diagnose the problems. We're going to discern the promises and then we're going to depend on the powers We're going to diagnose the problems, we're going to discern the promises, and we're going to depend on the powers, and we're going to use the structure I already gave you. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the problems. Verses 6, 7, and 8, we're going to discern the promises. And then the last bit, verses 9 and following, we will depend on the powers. You guys ready? You excited? We're talking about victory. We don't want to be losers. We want to be winners. Last week, we talked about sports. You remember that? For those of you that were here, read your little tidbits from an essay about the euphoric joy of being on the winning team, even when you're just a fan in the stands. Afterwards, someone asked me, Phil, have you ever cried after a sporting event? Yeah. Don't bring it up. When I was a kid, my team was in the Super Bowl and they lost. And they lost at the very last second. My team at that time, if anybody knows, the 1999 Tennessee Titans. I'm born and raised mostly in, in Maryland, but I was born in Tennessee. I don't know why, but I liked the Titans. And they were in the Super Bowl, and they became one yard short from winning the Super Bowl, and I collapsed. Collapsed on the ground, weeping. I was a loser. I picked the wrong team. We don't want to be losers. We want to be on the winning team, right? That's what this psalm is about, but not about the Tennessee Titans, but about heaven and hell, life, marriage, friendship, the church, the advancement of the gospel, things that really matter. And so, friends, I hope that you will walk with me through this psalm so you will see what it means to walk in victory in Jesus. So let's first, before we understand the victory, let's diagnose the problems. And you notice all of these were plural, hopefully. The problems. There's two problems I see. Start in verse 1. You'll notice, oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have been angry. And then he prays, restore us. More literally, it's return to us because They feel distant. Where where did God go? And that's why it parallels with verse 9 and 10. Who's going to bring us to the fortified city? How are we going to attack Edom? If you know anything about where Edom is, it is high, perched on a high mountain, and the way to get there is only one path, and you get exposed if you try and fight Edom on your own. You don't have the power of God with you. You're going to lose. They are a fortified city. They're the definition of it. And they're enemies of God's people. And without God's power, they're wondering, what are we going to do? God rejected us. See that in verse 10? He did not go forth, so we need him to return. He's not with our army. And so they're acknowledging that they have have a God problem. 
The problem is that they don't have God with them. Look at the way it's described in verse 2. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. Breaches there is just like the word for the, the walls of, of their city or their, their buildings. And so you've got an earthquake being described. Maybe metaphorically, it is a poem. Or maybe quite literally. There are times in God's word where God's people disobey God and he brings judgment by an earthquake. So maybe it's a reference to that. When God's people reject the covenant of God and are unfaithful, the earth shakes. It's torn open. Our walls need repaired. They're tottering. Look at verse 3. Still, you, God, you have made your people see some hard things. What kind of hard things? Well, you've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. This is worth meditating on. You've given us wine to drink. This is about an image that's used all through the Bible about the cup of God's wrath and his fury. And it's using alcohol as a symbol of just keeping on dumping alcohol in someone's mouth or keep drinking and forcing them to drink, drink until they can't walk anymore. They're staggering. They're just all over the place. And it's interesting, isn't it, that wine is both a symbol of joy in the Bible, and therefore it's not forbidden, and drinking alcohol is not something that you should never do, because it's immediately sin if you drink a little bit. But it's also a description of judgment. I wonder if your view of alcohol matches the Bible's view of alcohol. A gift? Celebratory joy? A danger? A depiction of judgment? Too many of us, I think, are flippant in our Christian freedoms about our usage of alcohol to think that it's not dangerous. Friends, it's dangerous. It is a description used here in Psalm 60 and all over the Bible of you drink too much. It is not good for you, your friends, your family, your witness to Jesus. So help us. I hope that you will see through this, just in the words and the language and the symbols that the Bible are using, that you adopt those as the way you understand and make sense of your world. But the point here is that they have a problem. The problem is God. Is that pretty obvious on the surface? You, 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 you did this. Now, if you knew the stories well, and I know some of you do, but some of you don't, but when you read these stories, you should know that a lot of these cases are actually battles between other nations. So, so how come there aren't credit being given to these other armies? Like, let's say, for example, the Edomites, back when they're wandering through the wilderness and they lost. Or when they're fighting Philistia. Or they're fighting Moab in the book of Numbers. And they lose. How come it's not, well, Moab, they, they beat us down. No, David is reflecting theologically. He's reflecting with a God-centered lens for how he understands the history of the people of Israel. And he's saying, God, you are the reason this happened. Except, I don't think he's doing it like this, pointing the finger. It's all your fault. This is not blame shifting like you see Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, what happened, guys? Well, that woman you gave me. Well, well, you see that serpent. No, no, this is not blaming God. It is saying, without God, we are goners. We're losers. That's what I think is happening in this psalm. I don't sense, by the way the psalm goes on, that this is defiant 
rebellious kind of stubbornness as much as it is an acknowledgement that without the power of the presence of God, we will not defeat anyone. There will be no victory. And that's why you see that conclusion at the end in verse 11. For vain is the salvation of man. It's a waste of your time to go into battle without the power of God with you. So, problem number one, a God problem. Problem number two, a people problem, a sin problem, a pride problem, a prayerlessness problem. Do you all see what I mean? Why would you go into a battle without God? Because you don't think you need him. Pride. Why are they praying repeatedly through Psalm 60? Oh, God, return. Oh, God, come with us. We need you. Probably because they weren't praying. Reflecting the pride. We got this. Brothers and sisters, Christians, one of the core enemies the diagnosis of your own heart, your own personal life. Collective members of Embassy Church, pride is so often going to be one of the key problems that we have that is going to separate us from the power and the presence of God and living in the victory that Jesus has given us. I wonder if you can learn in your own life to diagnose the difference between blaming God. God, this is all your fault. If you would have been there, instead of accepting responsibility, humbling yourself like David is doing and saying, please return. That's verse one. Look at verse two. Repair. Our foundations are shook. Our walls are following down. Or verse four. I actually think, and this is a tricky thing, but I just, I think that the language here is set up in a kind of imperative sense, similar to what we see in the previous, this is a prayer, a request, set up a banner for those who fear you that they can run and flee from the danger of the bow and the arrow. And then in verse 5, oh, your beloved ones, then they'd be delivered and we would have salvation by the strength of your right hand and you would answer us. Do you see that David does not have a God problem where it's he's an atheist? Or a God problem where he thinks it's all God's fault. I think he's owning responsibility here. I think he is acknowledging that we need God and we've not been asking for it, so we're going to repent by asking, God, we need you. We need a banner raised high and a rallying point for all the troops to say, you, God, are our center point of rallying for protection and power. I think that's the way to read verses 4 and 5. And he's doing that on the confidence. Look at the way verse 5 is tender. This is the language used all through the Song, song of Songs, that, that poetic, erotic love book between two lovers, Song of Songs. That word beloved is used again and again and again. This is one of the very, very few times it's used outside of that book. Your beloved ones will be delivered. Do you have a God problem where you think he's angry with you but doesn't love you? David doesn't. He has a God problem, and he knows precisely because of being loved by God, God is angry with him. God's anger and his love rise and fall together, brothers and sisters. We don't have to pick and choose and think he's only angry. His anger, if there is the experience of his displeasure or his chastisement, his discipline, is precisely because you're sons and daughters. He loves you. 
too much to let you persist in your pride and go on prayerless thinking, I got this, I got this, God. He loves you too much. He will let you experience the consequence of that stupidity. Just like the people of Israel did, and they learned. And so he prayed, and that's why the superscription says, Joab slain 12,000 Edomites. Victory came because of learning and listening to the lesson of defeat. So I ask you, discern the problem in your own heart, in your own life, in our own church, Embassy Church. I hope that you enthusiastically amen when we are praying for Christ, the King, Reformed Baptist Church. Just a great example for us to pray for other gospel works and realize that the kingdom of God and the victory of Jesus is not just here at Embassy. It's such an important thing for each of us to humble ourselves and remember there are brothers and sisters all over just Chicagoland and we should love and care about them and hopefully our prayerfulness would help us be humble and not filled with pride to think, well, we only want God to bless us. So hope you see that our commitment to read scripture, pray scripture, gather weekly is an antidote to our God problem, to ask for his presence and his power, and an antidote to our pride problem, our people one. And in the same way that they learned from this by diagnosing the problem and doing something about it, I hope you would too. Let's not just hear this. I heard that. Let's be doers of God's word as our psalm ends, that they move forward in doing. Secondly, let's discern the promises. Verses 6, 7, and 8 is probably the part that for a lot of us, we like need a map. Like, what's going on here? Let me read them for you again. God spoke in his holiness with exaltation. So this is God, quote, quote, God says, with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Now, there's a good chance that this is a reference to the book of Joshua, but I'm not convinced. My studies have led me to think that this is a reference to Jacob. When he's returning back to the land, started building a house and owning property before he even made it to his brother Esau. You can go read about that in the book of Genesis, but here's my point. I think this is the first time we see the person who represents all of Israel to start having ownership in the land of Israel. And so it's, it's kind of chronologically significant that he starts here with these two place markers. And careful readers of scripture would realize, oh, that's, that's the two spots Jacob stopped. And he actually built a house and he built altars in these places before he made it to Esau. That's verse 6. Verse 7 changes. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. This one's easier. This is north, south, east, west. He names four different places, and each of them are places that God promised that his people would dwell, and he gives a marker to the north, a marker to the south, a marker to the east, a marker to the west. So what's the point? Do you remember when God promised Jacob after he was leaving the land and being exiled out of the land because he deceived and stole from his brother and his family was a wreck? God promised him in the middle of that exile, I'm going to bring you back. 
And so he reappears to Jacob, and in those reappearances, Jacob is seeing the fulfillment of God's promise in the book of Genesis. Then you move on to verse 7. Then you see that in the book of Joshua, when they come into the land, these four boundary markers end up becoming the way to understand the promise God made to Abraham and Jacob and are passed down to Moses. When you cross into the land and you have conquest over the land of Canaan, You're going to mark out these areas and you're going to live and dwell there. Do you see how both verse 6 and verse 7 are comments on promises that God made to Jacob first and then to the people of Israel as they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan and into the land of promise? So that's why I said discern the promises. That's what David's doing. He's looking at the victories and defeats and he's remembering God promised us land. So he's thinking, Is this land that is presently occupied by enemy territory, were we given that land? Oh, yes, you were, David. And so that's why right in the middle of this psalm is a rehashing of the words God spoke previously. He's discerning the promise, and he's saying, guys, I know that God will be with us because he promised us this land. Are you all understanding that's a very basic but fundamental principle for your prayer life, your worship, your understanding of all of Christian life? You have promises given to you in the word of God. And even when those promises are not fully fulfilled, you can bank on those promises and pray boldly, God, you said in your word. So I now ask, in the name of Jesus, be true to your word. If you don't have a simple rhythm for prayer, take that one. God, you promised in your word you would never leave me or forsake me. You promised that your love could never be separated from me. And there would be nothing, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. So I pray in the name of Jesus, let me know your love. Talk to him in that way. That's how the Psalms and really all of the model prayers in Scripture, so many of them, pray in that way. I would encourage you to adopt that, that, that kind of ritual, that formula. You promised this, so on the basis of that promise, I ask this. Look at the last promise, verse 8. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. You want to know my simple summary of what I just read to you in verse 8. And I mean this in no disrespect. I think this is somewhat ironic, if not trash talk. God speaking. And listen to what he says. Moab. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Moab is an enemy of the people of Israel, an enemy to David and these Israelite soldiers. Edom, enemy. Philistia, enemy. So he's naming three enemies. And based on the promise that if the nations bless you, I will bless those nations. If the nations curse you, then I will curse them. So I think David is reminding us of the promises of land and the promise of power and blessing and protection from the nations that would try and attack God's people. And God, in this poetic way, is saying, yeah, Moab, I'm going to wash my feet with them. I'm going to flip off my sandal. That's the more literal translation. It's not shoe, sandals. They wore sandals. I'm going to flip off my sandal. And they're going to pick it up and clean up after my sandals. And then finally, Philistia. I will shout in triumph. Or you might see a footnote that says, Philistia will shout 
And it's supposed to be like an ironic wordplay. Do you all get the point? Six, seven, and eight. David, through this psalm, is appealing to promises that God made in the past. On the basis of those promises, he has confidence that God will deliver the land and the power needed for them to defeat these people. And that's why I think it's incredibly useful for you to just get in the rhythm of thinking like the Bible thinks. So, very practically, before you ask for something, you should discern, did God actually promise that? So whether it's like magnificent wealth as an easy cherry picking, did God promise that you would be incredibly wealthy? Uh, No, (laughs) definitely not. So should I be disappointed or frustrated if he didn't answer that prayer? Maybe you should just discern whether or not he's giving you what's best for you rather than what you want. Did God promise that he will heal you in a specific certain way or time? Again, I don't think so. I think that James 5 is maybe the closest example of that. And I think there James is talking about weakness and not specifically sickness. Call the elders of the church and have them come and pray for you as you confess sins in your weakness, your spiritual poverty and weakness. Then he will heal you. Ah, do you see the difference between the disillusionment you might feel if you keep praying for God to heal you from your cancer? Or heal you from a certain ailment that's never gone away. And then you get frustrated and say, God, why didn't you heal me? You promised in your word. Well, that's what I'm suggesting. I don't think you discerned the promise very well. He didn't promise that in his word. He promised to raise your dead body from the grave. He promised that some people will be healed now as a demonstration of the new heaven and new earth. But not all will receive physical healing now. But if you call the elders of the church and in your spiritual weakness, you confess your sin and you ask for prayer, he will heal. You can bank on it. Do you see the difference between lack of discernment and big time discouragement versus rightly discerning God's promises accurately and then being able to go to the Lord on the basis of those promises and in faith say, God, I am weak, I am spiritually sick, and I'm calling the elders and the members of the church to confess sin and humbly bow before the throne and ask for your power and your healing. Diagnose the problems, discern the promises, and there's lots of them, friends. I just gave you one simple example as an illustration for how you can apply this principle of discerning the promises. But third and finally, We need to depend on the powers. This is verses 9 to 12. We already talked about these verses, but we need to apply them. We need to think about them. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who's going to lead me to Edom? God, he rejected us. He didn't go forward with our armies. And then notice the prayer in verses 11 and 12. This is the key line here for our point. Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. It's he who will walk over them. He will stamp them out. Do you notice that the solution here 
is not inactivity, passivity, but going with the Lord into battle. The solution is not, we've got enemies, you just fight them for me. I'll depend upon you. But rather, verse 12 says, with God we shall do. And that's a very faithful wooden translation of the Hebrew. With God, we will do something. And we will do it with power, strength, valiantly. Because it is him, as we go and do, that we'll get the victory. If this concept for you seems like a paradox, welcome to the Bible. Both of these things can be true. But if you don't understand and press in to the difference between you just moving forward in your own strength versus learning the power of walking in the presence of God, then my friend, you will be wasting your life. And if you miss the problem of your pride and you don't turn to discern the promises, and not depend upon the power, there will be no hope after this life. The powers are with God. And the way that he reveals this power is not the way you and I would think about it, which brings us back to last week's sermon, Psalm 59. The Bible presents a different kind of power, a different kind of strength. When we think about Psalm 60, and we think, Pastor Phil, could you please just help me understand what is the power that I need for victory? It's not what you would normally think. Wednesday night before Bible study, we've been reading Charles Spurgeon's autobiography, and we're, we're getting to the chapter where Spurgeon tells how he became a Christian. And he starts that chapter by saying, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, the punishment of sin placed on Jesus, is something that humans could have never made up. There is no myth or legend or fairy tale that reflects the beauty or the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember reading that and I was just like, guys, I hope you were encouraged because that was so good. Go read the start of chapter 7 of Charles Spurgeon's volume 1 autobiography of how he came to faith and then served the Lord. It, it is incredibly encouraging. You can know that this is real in part because there's nothing else like it in the world. Jesus Christ, the greater David, he displays the power of God by drinking the full cup of verse 3. You know that wine that was referenced as the fury of God's wrath that makes people stagger? Jesus didn't just stagger. He was toppled over. He was sin. He who knew no sin became sin. The epitome of all that is the judgment of God. And that cup got poured out on Jesus till everything went dark and the ground quaked. Isn't that what verse 2 said? The ground is quaking as God judges us as he leaves the people of Israel. That's what you should be thinking about when you see the man hanging on the cross. The sky darkens, the grounds quake, and he cries out. The ultimate cry of dereliction 
The very words used here in Psalm 60 were put on the lips of Jesus. More specifically, the, the words of Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can't you just imagine that Psalm 60, in all of its fullness, is experienced in the cross of the judgment of God, the anger of God towards sin, the quaking, the making people see hard things. But here's the incredibly good news. You and me, my friends, we have a pride problem, and the power of the cross is the solution. When you realize that he died and hung on that cross and became sin because of your sin, because of your rejection of God's wisdom and ways. And when you realize that it was you that should have been on that cross, that is when all human pride falls on its face and realizes you are a loser. Like Pastor Phil was when the Tennessee Titans lost, you should weep and wail and realize we are losers. Humanity as an entire entity are losers. God came to us in the person of Jesus full of grace and truth, and we stiff-armed them in our pride to think we know better than the Son of God. That's what we did. That's what the people of Israel did, and that's what the Gentiles did, Jew or Gentile, Roman, slave, free. However you'd want to say it, humanity rejects God in their pride. When you realize that that's you, you should be overwhelmed with humility. The pride problem is resolved by the power of a God that's showing you this is how bad your sin really is. But do we just stay laying on the ground, weeping in our sin, beating ourselves up? Or is there a second power? The power of verse 5. Beloved ones. God demonstrated his great, incredible, intimate love for you in that while you were a sinner, he died for you on the cross, bearing the wrath and judgment of God so that if God has died in Christ and was raised, then you too could be died and raised with him and that his victory could be your victory. How can we simultaneously walk the tightrope of the Christian life and in this world, not being overly boastful on the one hand, but not overly depressed on the other? Have you ever felt that tension? The answer is kneeling before the cross in your shame and humility and receiving the gift, the free gift of God's grace that is given to you in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. The word banner is used all over the Old Testament, but one of my favorite uses is when the people of God are in the wilderness and all of the people, lots of them at least, were bitten by poisonous snakes and they're about to die. And Moses is instructed to take his rod and lift up this rod and hold a snake up above it. And it's called a banner, a rallying point for the sick, dying, poisoned people. And that if they would just see the snake on the rod, they would be healed. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, he has become the banner. He has become 
the one lifted up. He is the healer of the nations. That if you would just see the beauty and the glory of God becoming man and dying in your place, oh, what joy should fill one's heart. What overwhelmed glory you should receive to know that I am both humbled down to the dust because of my sin, put him on that cross, but because of that same cross he has lifted and raised me and said that I have a place at the right hand of God, the powerful right hand that will defeat, victory, overcome enemies, whatever. Death itself, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's swallowed up in the death of death, in the death of Jesus Christ. That's a book title, by the way. John Owen wrote that back in the day. The death of death, the victory over death, it's the death of Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask each of you, do you meditate on the cross in a balanced way? Do you experience the overwhelming joy and love and victory and feel triumphant and say, up from the grave he arose? Or as we sang already and we will sing again, there's victory, high king of heaven, my victory won. We can celebrate. There is something to celebrate. When you eat the bread and you take the cup, you're taking it saying, that's mine. What he did is for me. Nothing can stop you then. What confidence, what what real, not, I have self-esteem, but I have God-esteem, Christ-esteem. How many of us need that message of the cross because we're wallowing in self-pity? On the flip side, how many of you are not discerning and diagnosing the problem or promises? And therefore, you are stiff-arming God's ways and his wisdom and his word. And you're going on in proud stubbornness, thinking, I got this. I'm going to just do this my own way. Instead of humbly submitting ourselves to the church, to the elders, to the the practice of prayer, to weekly corporate worship, we humble ourselves in submission to the commandments that God gives to teach us humility. And we do that ultimately because we know we're sinners. And we shouldn't think we know better. Do you see the balance here? I think that this could potentially be the two greatest powers that could unlock the most loving and kind and humble and joy-filled people that walk this earth. Because that's what Jesus was like. And I'm hoping that as you gaze at his beauty and you partake and participate in his victory, you'll overcome sin. You'll hate it. You'll see the ugliness of it. You'll experience the wrath of it. And at the same time, not hours, days, years later, at the same time as the anger and love of God rise and fall together, experiencing that huge hug of acceptance. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Do you believe it? Are you going to receive it? I pray you would by faith and not Go doing it without God's grace, as our psalm concludes. Do it. Do something. Be active, not passive. Go fight your battles. But in the strength of knowing Jesus has already won the great and decisive battle. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we come now in the name of Jesus because we have no right to ask anything of you as the sinners that we are. We are the epitome of losers. But praise be to God that the story does not end with that note. We pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would take each and every one of us and rightly apply this word the way it needs to be applied. We ask that for the proud in the room, that they would be humbled. They'd fall down weeping, fall down in great remorse that they have sinned, not just because the consequences of their sin are bad, but because they've sinned against you, God. Give them a godly sorrow. Not a show, not a demonstration of their peers or friends or church members around them. Look how sad I am. But a true, genuine contrition over the ways in which they have spurned your grace, taken for granted the gift of life, and lived as if you didn't even exist. God, we pray that that work of conviction would happen by your Spirit's power. Your word promises that that's why you sent the Spirit in the first place. So convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And secondly, we pray that the Spirit of God would do the thing that I cannot do. Take these words of mine and may they bear good fruit for the joy of your people, for the glory of your name, and for the sanctification of overcoming debilitating sins, overcoming broken marriages, overcoming brokenness in our society and our community. Lord, may the victory of Jesus be like a banner raised up into the heavens and we rally around it Sunday after Sunday and not just here at Embassy, but across the nations. Oh God, glorify your name as we receive your victory and do it all for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray, amen.